The end of the book of Daniel is a part of scripture which we steer away from because it is confusing, it is hard to understand why it is relevant to us. And also, in our sort of circles, I'm assuming you've not moved into different circles in the two years since I was here, <laughs> because there are other people who spend a lot of time in these chapters, and who use them to try to work out the minutiae of what is going on in the political and international world around us according to God's timetable. And because we don't enjoy being confused and not understanding what's going on, and because we don't want to indulge in speculation about how prophecy might apply to Donald Trump, we just don't read these bits of Daniel. And that's a shame. It's a shame because they're quite important. And they're quite encouraging when you get down to it. You may not feel that that was particularly encouraging so far, but, but I think it is once we get our heads around what's going on here. This, of course, follows on from, from Daniel's prayer in chapter 10. Daniel prayed in chapter 10 because, I think, the exile was kind of over, and yet things weren't going well. And he wanted to understand, what is this all about? If you read the early chapters of Ezra, you'll get a, get a feel for what this was like. A small number of people have been returned from Babylon to Judea, they started rebuilding the temple, but before they even got very far, opposition put a halt to all of that. Jerusalem was still in ruins. The people of God were despised. And yet Daniel knew that the return from exile was meant to be great and glorious. So what was going on? So we find Daniel in chapter 10, mourning and praying. And then, after three weeks, an angel comes with a message for him. Now, the glorious thing about chapter 10 is that it immediately tells us that there is a lot more going on than we can see in the world. I don't know about you, but when I pray, I do not typically imagine that there are angels moving as a result of my prayer. I certainly don't imagine that those same angels might be held up by evil demonic forces such that an answer to my prayer is delayed until they can get angelic reinforcement and get through. But that's what is happening according to Daniel chapter 10 when Daniel prays. There is a lot more going on in the world than we might imagine. A lot more than we can see. And yet, when it comes to the actual message that the angel brings, that is the substance of chapters 11 and 12, we're right back in the world that we all know well. This is what the world looks like. I mean, we don't know this particular epoch well, but, you know, the world of power and kings and wealth and marriages and falling out. This is the world that we live in. And that is the world that Daniel chapter 11 describes. Chapter 11 is, um, is a hard read. It's a hard read because it's hard to just keep your attention on what is actually going on. I considered drawing a little timeline, but then I decided that I was just too distracting and a waste of time. Daniel 11 gives us a fairly detailed breakdown of international relations in the ancient Near East from the death of Alexander the Great, 523 BC, until the death of the Seleucid king Antiochus Epiphanes IV, 164 BC. 
That's great, isn't it? Good and fairly good. This is actually one of the primary sources that historians use to find out what happened in that period, which is interesting. Obviously, they don't consider it to contain prophecies on the whole. Let me just give you a quick bit of background. You don't need to know this because it's not a history lecture. Uh, at the beginning of chapter 11, we get the tail end of the kingdom of Persia. Three more kings arrive in, per- in Persia, and then the fourth, he will invade Greece. And then, in fact, verse 3, a mighty king will arise who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. Alexander of Macedon conquered first the whole of Greece, and then the whole of the Persian kingdom, and then he went as far as India. Uh, he stopped up to come to Egypt along the way, because, you know, that's what you do. He went, went as far as India, uh, imagining that he was about to reach the end of the world. Um, he didn't reach the end of the world, and was quite keen to carry on fighting all the way through, but his, his soldiers were less keen, uh, and so he was forced to turn around. And he died uh, after, I think, ten years on the throne, back in Babylon, um, probably of drinking too much. He was very young. It was astonishing. But then, as soon as he was dead, his empire fell apart into four pieces. Two of the pieces are irrelevant for our purposes, centered around Macedon and Greece and Thrace. The two pieces are important. The Seleucid Empire in the north, centered on Syria, and the Ptolemaic Empire in the south, centered on Alexandria and Egypt. These are basically the two kingdoms that we've got in Daniel chapter 11. And Daniel describes, or the angel describes to Daniel, the interactions between these two kingdoms over hundreds of years. We can pinpoint quite a lot of the interactions described here to specific historic events. We know about some of these marriage alliances from other sources. We know about some of these wars. But I bet, as you were reading through Daniel 11, or as I was reading through it, you were being forced to listen to it and thinking, why am I here? Um, I bet there were points where you thought, I've just completely lost the plot here. <laughs> What's going on? One of the commentators that I read helpfully suggests that if you feel like you've lost the plot in Daniel chapter 11, that's the point. There is no plot. I don't know if you noticed it. The kings of the south invade the north. They succeed for a little while, then they get beaten back. Kings of the north invade the south, they succeed for a little while, then they get beaten back. They make a marriage alliance and they seem to be friends, then their alliance disintegrates and they're at war again. Again, one of the refrains that keeps coming up is that he will not succeed. He did not succeed. It came to an end. It failed. He was driven back. What you've got here is hundreds of years of politics, of warfare, of marriage and diplomacy. And for the angel reporting to Daniel, what it all adds up to is a stupid waste of time. What is the meaning of all of these events, according to this angel? He doesn't give any meaning to the events at all. In fact, the way he tells the story is almost designed to make them meaningless. None of the kings are actually named. They're just the kings of the north and the kings of the south, which has the inevitable effect of sort of making them all merge into one another, so that you feel like you're just watching... If you imagine sort of the, the uh, eastern Mediterranean, you feel like you're just watching a line going up and down and up and down as the various kings exchange territory in the ancient Near East and then get it back again. What is the point of all this? Well, I reckon if Daniel 10 
was designed to teach us that there is a lot more going on than we see. Daniel 11 is designed to teach us that quite a lot of what we see that seems very important is not so important as we might think. We live in dramatically turbulent political times. I mean, not so much perhaps as certain other epochs we could name, but still pretty turbulent. And people, and Christians indeed, are inclined to feel uncertain about what is going on and insecure about what is going on. We feel like there must be some deep significance to these events. I'm not convinced that we need to worry about those sorts of things. The joy of Daniel 11 is, of course, that God is able to tell Daniel in advance what is going to happen. He knows about all of this stuff. None of it is beyond his control. But also, it is not the significant thing. The fortunes of nations, the rise and fall of different armies and militaries, the empires that come and go, that is not the main story. In chapter 11 of Daniel, um, everything builds towards the last king of the north, Antiochus IV, Epiphanes. Uh, Epiphanes means the appearance of God, because Antiochus um, believed himself to be the actual manifestation of Zeus in the flesh. And he seems like a nice guy. No, he doesn't actually. Uh, And his role in this chapter is that he sets himself up as the greatest king. In fact, he sets himself up as greater than the gods. Verse 37, he will show no regard for the gods of his ancestors or for the one desired by women, probably um, Dionysus, nor will he regard any god, but will exalt himself above them all. Antiochus thought he was greater than any of the gods. He, uh, he, uh, he, he was uh, a Zeus worshipper, in, in name, but by of course claiming to be himself the appearance of Zeus, that turned him into a handy self-worshipper. He thought he was great. And yet, his role here, like the role of all of these kings in this story, is really just to provide backdrop to something much more important that is happening. Because you see, the significance for Daniel of the Seleucid and Ptolemaic empires is that the land of Judah sits slap bang right on the border between them. And so these armies that are going north and south are continually sweeping through the Holy Land. And so Daniel's people are going to be affected. Occasionally we see that they get uh, actively involved Uh, Verse 14, those who are violent among your own people will rebel in fulfilment of the vision, but no, without success. Their active involvement in the politics of the day actually doesn't make any difference. Might be a useful hint for the church in some respects. But what does make a difference is this. Let's skip to uh, verse 31. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress, and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Antiochus, um, for purely political reasons, tried to stop Jews from being Jews. He tried to turn Jerusalem into a Hellenistic Greek city-state where Zeus was worshipped. He stopped the sacrifices in the temple. He put up an altar to Zeus in the temple. 
And then it says, with flattery he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant. There was a, a faction within Judaism which was actually quite keen on these moves. They wanted to be part of the world, the wider world. And the wider world at that stage was defined by Greece. And so, making Jerusalem a Greek city-state seemed like a good move. We could escape the back of the ways of our ancestors. A, maybe the God of Israel was basically identical with Zeus anyway, because that was a sort of standard way of thinking in the ancient Near East. So, maybe it's okay if we just join in, give up on our Jewish distinctives, and become Greeks. They violated the covenant. But, says the angel, the people who know their God will firmly resist him. That's the significant thing that's going on in the whole of chapter 11 of Daniel. Armies are coming and going, high priests in Jerusalem are rising and falling, people are rising up and they're being put down, diplomacy is happening, marriages alliance, marriage alliances are being made and broken. But the only thing of real lasting significance here is that there are people in Judah who know their God and who will firmly resist the attempts to push them into the mould of the world. They will be loyal to the covenant God of Israel, regardless of what is going on around them. Amidst the tumults of the world, they know their God. It's a great description of faithful people. Those, those who know their God. And it makes sense. It makes sense in Daniel's day. Those who really knew God could hardly imagine that compromise with the religion of Zeus or the power politics of Antiochus was going to be acceptable to that God. Those who knew their God knew that just mold, uh, fitting in with the world, being squeezed into the world's mould, was not going to cut it. They knew what their God required of them. They knew what he was like. They knew his holy, electing love, which had called them out to be a different people, people who were uniquely uh, related to the God who created the universe. They knew that. Because <coughs> they knew their God, they firmly resisted. Note that that didn't mean that they therefore escaped from the trouble of the times. Read on. Those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time they will fall by the sword, or be burned, or captured, or plundered. Those who knew their God firmly resisted being made worldly. But that didn't prevent their oppressors from putting them to death or in other ways plundering them. In fact, it probably made it more likely. Think how solid their knowledge of their God must have been to take a stand under those conditions. The end result is that they'll be refined. Some of the wise may stumble so that they may be refined purified and made spotless until the time the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. So you notice, the angel assures Daniel, the end time is planned and it will come regardless of the raging of Antiochus or anybody else, regardless of what is going on in the world, what God has appointed will take place. And God's goal 
way that God is using the political forces of the kings of the north and the south and all of the cultural forces of the world is to refine and purify his people. It is true that sitting in middle Palestine in between the mighty forces of north and south must have been pretty imposing and terrifying but that was the fire where the drops would be burned away and God's people would be refined and purified for his purposes. See, that's the story. The story is not, hey, what's the king of the south doing? Which fortresses has he plundered this week? The story is, are God's people, those who know their God, standing firm, even through suffering and death? And are they, therefore, being purified to reflect more clearly the character of the God they know? useful for us, I think, to get that priority. The important thing for us as the church in times when politics seems mad and international relations seem scary, the important thing, the priority for us is to know our God, to know what he is like, to understand what he has done. If we know our God, we will firmly resist all of the attempts to squeeze us into the mould of the world. Whether that looks like fear, or whether it looks like consumerism, or whether it looks like power politics. The role of the world is not, uh, the role of the church, sorry, is not to make the rest of the world conform to our vision. The role of the church is to know God and to live as if the God we know is real in the midst of the chaos of the world. That's it. Everything else is sound and fury, signifying not very much, as Shakespeare did not say. (laughs) The thing with Antiochus is, at the end of chapter 11, he dies, just like all of the other kings of the north and the south before him. He will come to an end, and no one will help them. And that's true of every trend in the world, every person in the world, every great influence in the world. It will come to an end. We need neither be taken in by it nor alarmed by it. That's chapter 11. Lots of meaninglessness. But through it all, stand firm. Chapter 12 is more exciting. And weirder. Because in chapter 12, the angels come back. At that time, as in at the end, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. And we've seen Michael before. He was the guy who reinforced the angelic messenger in chapter 10, who was trying to get through but couldn't because he was resisted by the prince of Persia and, and the prince of Greece was coming. Remember all of that? maybe, angelic warfare. Here is Michael coming up at the end of time. And in chapter 12, if we learn in chapter 11 that we don't need to take quite so much notice of the world that we can see as we maybe thought we did, in chapter 12 we learn that there is hope. And that is going to be critical because those who know their God will only stand firm 
if there is something in the future for them to look forward to. You and I will only stand firm as Christian believers who know their God if we have hope. You cannot stand forever without knowing that there is something over the horizon. And there is hope. And the hope is the resurrection, which is the best hope. It really is. It's the best hope because it's right there at the bottom. We were, we were, we're preaching through Luke up at CCC in Luke's Gospel. And then last week, Jesus said to us, Do not fear those who can destroy the body and after that have nothing more than they can do. Which if you're like me, you've been in church for a long time, you read a lot, you've read a lot, and it sort of washes over you, but think about it. It's like Jesus says, well, it's the worst they can do, kill you. Except he's not making a joke, he means it. What's the worst they can do? Kill your body. And after that, they can't do anything else to you. And that is going to be critical for, for Daniel and his people. Remember I said that Daniel might have been disappointed at the state of Israel in the immediate post-exile period. I reckon he probably was. And so Daniel is being encouraged here that his faithfulness all the way through that period of exile, all through the 70 years in Babylon, has not been pointless. Because God's promises to Israel have not failed. There will come a time when Michael the angelic prince who protects Israel will arise. And then in the midst of a great time of distress, Israel will be delivered. At that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. See, the angel is telling Daniel, it is still coming. The rescue and the deliverance and the end of the exile, the proper end of the exile, when everything gets fixed, that is still coming. It is still ahead. Keep looking forward to it. Now you're going to have to keep looking forward to it all the way through all of this nonsense with the kings of the north and the south. And that's going to go on for hundreds of years. But at the end, Michael will rise and Israel will be delivered. Notice the way that your people are described and find everyone whose name is found written in the book. In the book of life. In God's book. God knows who are his people and they will be saved. We need to remember, we Christians need to remember that Jesus is coming back. I don't know if you um, are like me and tend to forget that. You know how, like, today is Sunday, tomorrow will be Monday, and then after that we'll go to bed, and then it'll be Tuesday, <laughs> and then Tuesday will tick by, and Wednesday will come, and so on and so forth. In your mind, if your mind is like mine, and I imagine it is, that calendar stretches indefinitely into the future. Day following day following day. And of course, we know that at some point, the calendar will go on the hour calendar, because we will drop out and die. But the days will follow days will follow days. But it isn't true. Because there will come a day which is the last day and God's people will be delivered from this wicked world and all of creation will be restored into the image of Christ. And there will be a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. That's going to happen at an actual particular time. There will be a particular year 
in a particular month, in a particular day when that occurs. And if we don't know that, then what we're going to do is we're going to look out at the chaos of our world and feel deeply disheartened. Because the gospel has been around for 2,000 years and the world is as bad as it ever was. We need to know that one day all those whose names are written in the book will be delivered. It will happen. Daniel needed to know that. There is a future for Israel, Daniel. You will be delivered. But there's a problem for Daniel. See, it's great for Daniel to know that, that Israel will be delivered. That's great. But Daniel is really, really old. Like, like, really old. He's not going to make it. Like, I mean, he's not going to make it through the next king of Persia. Never mind three more kings of Persia and then Alexander the Great and all of his successor kings. He, he won't get to see it. Israel will be restored and delivered, but he won't get to see it. And that's pretty sad for Daniel. And so there's the glory. Verse 2 of chapter 12. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, and some to everlasting life, others <coughs> to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. The angel is saying to Daniel and to all those of God's faithful people who are going to die before the restoration comes, don't worry, you won't be left out. You're not going to miss out on it. Even though you die, you'll be raised from the dust and you'll shine like a star in all of its splendour in the restored creation. I don't know what Daniel understood by that. Look, this is arguably the only completely unambiguous reference to resurrection from the dead in the whole of the Old Testament. I say arguably because there are probably people here who would argue with me on that. So I don't know what Daniel understood by it. Well, frankly, didn't understand very much. Uh, verse 8. I heard, but I did not understand. <laughs> he, he didn't know. He didn't know what this meant. But look, we've got the jump on Daniel. We know something that Daniel didn't know because we have seen something. Not with our eyes. Christ Jesus has been raised from the dead. And so we understand what it is that this angel is saying to Daniel. When the deliverance comes... All of those who are in Christ, all of those whose names are in the book, will be raised up to be with Christ. And those who are left alive and those who are raised from the grave will be joined together in one glorious, shiny like stars, people of God in the new creation. And it will be good. The New Testament actually does some of this linkage for us quite helpfully. If you were to flip forward to Revelation 12, which... Um, you can read on your own time later on. In Revelation 12, we see Michael arise. And in Revelation 12, Michael arises at the point where a woman with 12 stars around her head gives birth to a male child. And the serpent, the dragon, tries to consume the child. But he's caught up into heaven. And he is the child who will rule all of the nations with a rod of iron. The woman is Israel. And the child she bears, whom 
The dragon would love to destroy, but who is in fact exalted to the throne of heaven and who will one day rule everything with the rod of iron is the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 12 is fantastic. And at that point, at that point, Revelation 12 says to us, there was war in heaven, and Michael and his angels fought against the devil and his angels, and the devil was defeated. And he was cast out of heaven, and there was no more room for him in heaven anymore. See, when is it, if you are in Daniel 12 and thinking, wow, Michael's going to arise, and that sounds, that sounds great, when is that going to happen? Folks, you missed it, it was 2,000 years ago. Michael the Archangel, by the fruit of Christ's work in his death and resurrection, had driven Satan from heaven. He can no longer come before God to accuse you or anybody else of your sins. And so we can live in such great hope of deliverance, of resurrection, of restoration. Daniel's this really uh, complicated book, I think. There, when you've read through all of the stories in Daniel, I'm sure you found them heroic and sort of great and cool. Daniel, he's not going to betray his faith, he can eat vegetables instead of meat. I find that the most heroic of all the stories, personally. Here's Daniel, he's not going to betray his faith, he's going to get thrown in with the lions and survive. Kind of cool, that's me. Here's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're not going to bow down to the idols. They're going to get thrown into the fire and come out alive. It's kind of cool, kind of heroic. God preserves his people. Great. But you've got to acknowledge that it's happening against the backdrop of the pagans are still winning. God's people are still downtrodden. Everything still looks rubbish. The world is still in chaos. And isn't that what our lives looks like? Even, even when things are going well, everything's still in chaos. Everything still seems pretty hard. <clears throat> what could Daniel cling to at that point in time? What can we cling to now? It has to be the hope that God's plan has not been derailed. But that amidst all of the chaos of the world, God is pushing his plan forward. For Daniel, that meant that the deliverance for Israel would come, that a rescuer would come, that a saviour would come. For us it means looking back on that saviour and rejoicing in what he has done. That we can look forward with confidence knowing he will come again. The deliverance will come. We, like him, will be raised into life eternal and incorruptible because we have trusted in him, because our names are written in his book. And that is exciting. No, it is. I mean, you look completely not excited, but it is exciting. I think the reason we're not so bothered by it is because Daniel knew he was in exile. Daniel knew that the pagans were winning, and he looked around the world and he saw that it was terrible. And he wanted God to be vindicated, and he wanted God's people to be saved. And so he prayed, and he fasted, and he looked for, Lord, when will your salvation come? Whereas, I live comfortably in my house, have nice food, can buy things. You know, and buying things is what makes your life worthwhile, the television told me. <laughs> and, and so, I forget. I forget that this is still exile, that everything hasn't been made right yet. That actually, 
it really matters that we're a tiny minority of people who are believing in Christ in this locality. It really matters that the vast majority of people have never heard of him or have rejected what they have heard. It, it is important that everything is still wrong out there in the world. I guess for you guys, and seriously, we, we up the road have been praying for you so much over the last week, but I guess maybe right now you have more of a sense of yeah, this, this is still messed up, this world. This is still awful. The response is not to despair. But the, the response is to say, just as Daniel could look out on all of that mess and yet be reassured that God's purposes would be fulfilled and that the Saviour would come, so we can look out on all the mess and say, one day there will be a resurrection of the dead and everything will be made right and God will do it resurrection of the dead as I was saying is the best hope because it's the hope at the bottom like the hope underneath everything else I have a lot of hopes for tomorrow I hope that I'll be able to get up when my alarm clock goes off like sometimes that doesn't happen I hope that I'll have time for breakfast. That usually happens, I love breakfast. I hope that the children will be well behaved before school. I hope that I'll have a productive day of work. Mm-hmm. I have all manner of hopes. And some of them will come to pass and some of them won't. And I have some bigger hopes as well, you know. I hope that, well, I won't tell you all of my hopes for government and politics because it's result. I hope that we won't end up in any major wars during my life. I have all of these hopes. Some of them will come to pass and some of them won't. But when you take all, if you take all my hopes away, if in fact nothing that I hope for is going to come to pass in this world, if in fact I'm going to die tonight, the hope right at the bottom, underneath every bad thing that can possibly happen, is... I'll be raised from the dead with Christ, like Christ, to be glorified with Him. There's nothing that can go underneath that, is there? There's nothing that can shatter that hope. No bad thing can push that hope down or get in the way of it. And that is what Daniel needed to know. When everything in history is rubbish, know that God is in control and that there will be a resurrection of the dead. And we can have more confidence in that than Daniel did. Because when Daniel says, I don't understand, my Lord, what will the outcome of all this be? We can say, but you know what, we don't understand everything, but we understand this. That God himself has come into our world to bear our sin and the judgment on our sin, and to sort out everything that is crooked in the person of his son. And his son went to the pits, to the pit and was raised, and therefore we too would be raised. This is the last thing. Sorry, go on for a bit. Those of you who remember me will not be surprised. Daniel is told at the end to just relax. Just relax. As for you, go your way till the end. You will rest. And then, at the end of the days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. Here's the thing, Christian. 
understanding all of this, that we're in exile, and that the world is terrible, and that it matters, and that we must cry to God for his salvation, somewhere right there at the bottom of it, there needs to be this. You will rest, and then you rise and receive your allotted inheritance. Nothing bad, nothing ultimately bad, can take that away from you. It is yours. And so we approach this world, even though it is messed up and awful, with a genuine confidence. If Jesus was raised, I will be raised. <coughs> if Jesus was raised, this world would be fixed. And so, don't panic. Don't stress. It's only the awfulness of the day-to-day world. It will pass. You just do your bit for God in the here and now. And then die and sleep and rest from your labors and know that God's got the rest your inheritance is ready I'm going to pray Father our world is deeply chaotic and we see so much around us that troubles us and there is so much in our own lives that troubles us Life is full of struggle and grief, and the joys are transitory. And we acknowledge that before you because that is our real experience. And yet we thank you. Thank you that nothing takes you by surprise. We thank you that you are in control of all. We thank you that you have prepared an inheritance for your people which not even death can take away from them. We thank you for the solid hope that we have because of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the cosmic triumph that has been won in him. And we ask, Lord, that that confidence would take us out to serve you in the world. Unpanicked, resisting the pressure to conform, knowing our God, the God of the resurrection, and living for him. Because we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.